0: To two this morning are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3. And that's verses 18 through 21. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is this fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Please pray with me one more time. Lord, we ask for grace as we look at your word we ask that you would give us insight, give us understanding to know how we might change, how we should change so that our families would honor you. Lord, we we not only want to honor you as a church and as individuals, but we want our families to be places where you are exalted. And Lord, we acknowledge that we don't always see what we're doing wrong. Lord, if we knew particularly what it is that we need to change, what needs to be different, If that was constantly in front of us, Lord, I I believe all of us would do it. And yet, God, even some things that just seem obvious often we miss. And so we pray for grace that we not only would understand what you instruct us here in Colossians as far as the family is concerned, but Lord, even that you would give us insight and wisdom and clarity beyond even what this text says so we might better honor you in every aspect as a family. Lord, as, as wives and husbands, as parents and children. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give insight. Lord, this morning, but even after hearing this message, that, that in meditation upon it and other aspects of Scripture, that you would give us guidance to see what we need to change, how we can better honor you. And we ask this because you deserve to be exalted. And so we ask your help and for your grace to exalt you in this regard. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I imagine if most of you were asked, what is the chief end of man? I imagine most of you would, would probably say the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever because of your familiarity with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But... What if somebody asked you, what is the purpose of the family? Another way to ask that is, what is the chief end of the family? Well, really, the the answer to both questions is the same. The chief end of the family is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's critical for us to understand that if we're to understand Paul's instructions as he gives them here in Colossians. God does not give these instructions primarily to just make our lives better or happier, for us to get along better, or even to make society better. He gives these instructions so that we might honor Him. These are His instructions, His design for how the family should function. And notice that these instructions to Christian members of the household um, come in Colossians chapter 3 right after the general principle of he gives in verse 17, All right? In verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what we saw is what it means last week. What we saw is what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do everything as his ambassador, as his representative, And so Paul takes that general application in verse 17, and now he's going to give specific applications for how we honor God within our respective roles in the family. And then he's going to speak to masters and slaves as well. And we'll look at that next week. So Paul's explaining what doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus looks like within Christian families. And there's a clear pattern for his instructions. He addresses first the various members, and then he gives a command to them. And then he actually gives a reason for the command, why it should be followed. And the commands Paul gives here are tailored to the various roles that each Christian has within their families. And you could think of the commands as the most critical or most influential aspects of their roles. This is particularly what they need to be paying attention to given their rules. So failure to leave these instructions will have a cataclysmic effect. And Likewise, on the other side, uh, a, a willingness and a, and a pursuit of these instructions will actually be what leads to the flourishing of the family, will lead to unity and joy. And so I think it's fair to ask yourself before we look at these verses, How strong is your family? Spiritually strong or just even relationally strong? If you were to give it a grade, how would you assess it? On account of our sin and pride, when we tend to see areas of weakness in our family, it's our tendency to assume that the problem primarily lies within other members Our families could be strong. They could be flourishing. If only my wife would do her part better. If only my children would listen to me more. If only my husband would love me more and lead better. It's very easy for us to see the shortcomings in others and be completely blind to where we're falling short. And knowing that, knowing... That is our tendency, we need to be aware of the principle that often we do have a log in our eye when we're examining the specs in other people's lives where they fall short. And chances are that our, it's our own failures in our respective roles that are actually leading to the failures of the other members of the household. If we were doing our part as God has called us to in these passages, quite likely the other members would actually do better too in their roles. And maybe, maybe, maybe not, but maybe that it's our failure that's at the core of all the other problems within our family. And so for this message really to be most fruitful, as we examine these instructions, I just encourage you, implore you to pay primary attention to where you are falling short. It doesn't mean you can't be aware of how other people are falling short, but your focus should be primarily on what is it that you need to do better within your family? So if if you do notice deficiencies in other members, though, be thinking of, okay, how can I actually help this person fulfill their role better? Not just identifying, oh yeah, they blow it here and here and here. But what is it that I can do to help them in their struggles so that they can be more faithful? Well, Paul addresses... Four members of the family in in these verses, which constitute our outline. He gives instructions to wives, husbands, children, and then fathers. Let's look, first of all, at his instruction to wives in verse 18. He says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The the Greek word hupatasso, submission, actually was primarily a military term, believe it or not. And it actually means to rank under. It, it came to basically mean to submit to the orders of whoever was above you. And, and the, the term can have the, the idea of forced submission, but every time it's used, almost every time, unless it's, yeah, especially when it's used as a command, every time it's used in the New Testament, It's used in the middle voice, signifying it's voluntary submission. Christians voluntarily submit to those who are in authority over them. And this is seen in a number of relationships. Christians are called to submit to God's law. Romans 8, 7, to governments and magistrates, to elders of churches, to Christian leaders, wives to husband, slaves to master's. So the, the fact that Christian submission is voluntary demonstrates that, that it's not a cringing obedience. It's not something that's done out of the fear of man, out of something that's performed out of, by spineless weaklings, but it's something that people freely accept as their duty. And with that, I think there are a number of other common misunderstandings regarding Christian submission. I want you to consider these with me. First of all, as I just mentioned, submission does not imply cowardice or fear of man. Largely because we see the submission of Christ to ungodly authorities almost all over his life. It does not imply inferiority. Christ even submitted to Pilate. He he tells Pilate, you would have no authority to do what you're doing unless it had been given to you. By implication, by me. And yet he submitted to him and the Jews imprisoned him, though he was the king of the Jews. It does not only apply when you agree with your authority or leader. In fact, submission is actually shown when you don't agree. Right? If you agree, you're not really submitting. You're just going alongside. But it's when you disagree that you show a willingness to submit. It is not merely an external act, really because it's an expression of worship for Christians, right? Parents, you know this. If you ask your children to go clean their room, even if they clean their room, but they do it in kind of a, you know, stomping off and shoving things and making a lot of noise, that's not submission, right? You can tell their heart is not in it. They're not doing it out of love or respect for you. They're just doing it because they're afraid of the consequences, maybe. Christian submission is done out of an act of worship unto God. It's from the heart. It's obedience from the heart, not just in the flesh. It is not without exception. We know this from, from multiple areas, but particularly Acts 5.29, where the apostles were told not to preach anymore. And they said that because God had commanded them to preach, they're going to obey God rather than men. So if an authority would ask you to sin or even violate your conscience, you have to resist that. So there, there is an exception, namely if they would cause you to sin. It's not based on the righteousness, faithfulness, or trustworthiness of the authority. Because that's very clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. Likewise, it's not only, we're not called to submit only when it's safe for us. As Americans, we assume we should only do something if it leads to our betterment, our, our comfort, our wealth, our security. But Christian submission is often in the face of great risk. Right? We're called to follow Christ. The cross was suffering. We're called to take up our cross and follow him. Submission often is risky. So we're not only to submit when it's safe for us. It does not mean you cannot hold your authority accountable. You can if if there's a law over that authority, you can appeal to that law. If if somebody's breaking the law, you can appeal to legal authorities to hold them accountable. It does not mean that one cannot make an appeal or express an objection. It's not there's nothing wrong for a child, if they're given a command for the parents, to say, respectfully, is there another option? Is there something else I can do? And there may not be. Maybe they just, the parent just wants them to submit immediately. So there's room for appeal. There's, there's room to, to make a, a, a respectful request for an alternative assignment. But the heart should always be to want to submit. Now, all of us, all of us in this room struggle with submission because our flesh bristles against the very idea of doing something somebody else wants us to do and rather than what we want to do. We want to do what we want to do. And so when somebody else tells us to do something contrary, every single one of us, our initial reaction is something's wrong there. Something's wrong somewhere at least. And so we need to be aware of how readily we can be hypocritical in regard to submission, right? A a husband who won't submit to the posted speed limit, yet he expects his wife to submit to, to his requests. Mothers expect their children to respond to them immediately when they ask them to do something, and yet they won't submit to their own husband's. A governor expects her citizens to submit to her, and yet she won't submit to God. Or there could be a, a, a manager of a company, an owner of a company, who expects his employees to submit to him and follow his instructions, and yet he won't submit to the elders of his church. It's very easy for us to be hypocritical. It's not hard for us to see how others are failing in their submission, and yet are we being good examples of what submission actually looks like. To expect others to submit to your authority when you want to submit to your authorities is just simple hypocrisy. It's it's, it's the caber in your eye. And the reason, notice, the reason why wives are called to submit to their husbands is because from creation, God designed men to be leaders of their families. We see this, Almost every time their role is brought up within Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2. We saw it in 1 Peter 3. And the reason why wives should submit to their husbands here in Colossians is given in the second half of the verse. As is fitting in the Lord. Fitting, that word refers to that which is proper. That is what one ought to do. It has this, this idea of oughtness. It's fitting for wives to submit to their husbands because their identity is now in the Lord. They are followers of Christ. They do everything in the name of Christ. Therefore, it is fitting for them to be submissive to whoever is in authority over them. And God has appointed their husbands to be in authority over them. Therefore, they ought to submit to their husbands. And all Christians are to be insubmissive to their authorities because they're submissive to their ultimate authority. All of our submission to whatever authority it is, is done out of our submission to God. And actually the point even in Romans 13, when Paul brings up a submission to governments, is submit to those lesser authorities because you submit to God as your authority. Submission is one of the primary expressions of worship because it shows we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. It is one of the primary ways of showing we no longer are slaves to our sinful flesh. But even when it's hard, even when it's something we're viscerally opposed to, we will do it because we love Christ and we trust His instructions even more than our own selfish inclinations. Now, mean, if you found it difficult to submit to any of the various regulations imposed by our government during covid You can understand the challenge that our wives face on a daily basis because not only are they called to submit to us, they're to do so perpetually, forever, or at least until death do us part. And not only are they called to submit to us when they disagree with our decisions. They're called to continue to care for us and love us and respect us. Ephesians 5. So you can see how hard it is. If you felt like it was hard to submit to masking regulations or just um, capacity requirements, and you found that frustrating, just imagine how difficult it must be for your wife, who's also called not just to submit to you, but to love you and honor you in all things. Submission is incredibly difficult. But again, that's why it's such a clear demonstration of the genuineness of our faith. And it's also why husbands are commanded to love their wives and not be harsh with them, which is the second point Paul makes in verse 19. He calls them to love their wives. Biblical love, agape, you're familiar with the word, refers to a a commitment, to selflessly care for another person. It's both a commitment and an expression of selfless care. So a commitment. It's characterized by steadfastness. There's security there. Because there's commitment. that The husband's not going to go away. He's not going to flee. He's not going to um, run and hide when things get hard. He's going to stick with her through thick and through thin through for better or worse in sickness and health right? that's why those vows were designed to to illustrate what love looks like it's a commitment steadfastness it can't be lost it also refers to selfless care in other words there's a genuine interest in the object of one's love apart from the interest of self but you care for that person. You love that person for who they are, not for what they do for you. Like in our world, we think of love as being, desiring somebody because that somebody has something to offer us. Like just to be uh, raw and honest. We like to use people. And when we see somebody we can use, we say, I love that person. Because they're useful to me. They make me feel good about myself. That's not love. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is I love that person even if they have nothing to offer me. If only they're just going to be a burden for the rest of my life. More pain. More agony. It's going to be a, they're going to be a loss to me. They're going to make life more difficult. It's I love that person because of who they are. And I'm going to be committed to them regardless of the cost of myself. Right? First John four, verse ten. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We didn't have anything to offer God. We were rebels. We're not going to bring him any more glory. He's he's glorious in his essence. But he wants us to enjoy that glory, to share in that glory. And even though it was going to cost him the life of his son, he sent his son. And the son willingly accepted that responsibility out of love. Not because we have something to offer God, but because he just wants to give everything he has to us. That's biblical love. And that's how husbands are called to love their wives. And so biblical love isn't primarily demonstrated when we... Show affection to our wives when we kiss them or hug them. But when we choose to die to what we want to do in order to care for them. In order to serve their best interests. So when you, you see the word love in the Bible, don't think Romeo and Juliet or Disney. Think the cross. Husbands, that's how you're called to love your wives. as Christ love the church. And interesting, Paul Paul slightly breaks from his pattern here when he addresses husbands. Notice that instead of giving a reason for the command to love, he actually gives an additional command, which is, that's remarkable. It should draw our attention. The ESV translates the phrase, and do not be harsh with them. I think the NASB is closer as it translates it, and do not be embittered with them. The word uh, pecrino is used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it, and it refers to bitterness, like the, the, in Revelation that wormwood causes the water to be bitter. That's the idea of bitterness. It, a churning in the, sub, uh, the stomach is the idea behind that word. Now, of all things, why is bitterness the threat that Paul addresses? He could address so many other things for husbands. Why bitterness? I think it's because Paul is easily, Paul is aware of how easily we can be embittered. Really, anytime somebody offends us, there's going to be a temptation to bitterness. Anytime people don't function according to our expectations, especially when they don't treat us the way we expect to be treated, we're going to be tempted to Bitterness. And because God has appointed husbands to be the leaders of their homes, it's, it's, it's a common tendency for husbands to assume that because God has called wives to submit to them and to respect them, that therefore, on the basis of that command, they are worthy of respect. And so when their wives don't demonstrate respect for them, it's easy for them to become embittered. So if a husband... Again, gets offended by anything. Anything that offends him is a potential threat to bitterness. The same is true with affection. If he doesn't get the affection that he thinks he deserves. Maybe he thinks he deserves it because he's hard working. He works 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And when he comes home, he deserves a little more rest, a little more relaxation, a little more love from the wife. And because she's not giving him the affection and tension he thinks he deserves... He grows sullen and bitter. What does it look like when one is embittered? Resentment? Self-pity? You, you start to think about the record of wrongs that a person has done against you. All the different failures. Often, and lots of, all, often it's just small things. And they just start to accumulate. And it's often done as a way of justifying um, either your offenses or to defend yourself from getting offended against again. Really, I think the, the nicest way of putting um, this is when we get embittered, we're seeking to protect ourselves from getting offended again. We're putting up walls of defense. It's a remarkable thing how men can, can demonstrate incredible courage In the face of life and limb. And yet, when they get offended by their wives, they can become hypersensitive, hypersulky. They're ultra protective of their emotions, even cowardly, when their pride has been wounded. So that they avoid contact with their wives. That they only communicate in grunts and snorts or slamming doors. Because they desire to protect themselves from further hurt. And so, in their mind, what they're doing is they're, they're believing that their greatest threat is out there. It's their wives. They're the enemy, they're what they have to protect themselves against. And you can see how that grows into just a wall, an increasing wall of protection, but it's just cowardice. Their wives aren't their threat, sin is. But bitterness turns their hearts against their wives. Again, any time that you're offended, you are going to be tempted towards bitterness. Like an offense against you is like a bullet. So think of the old westerns. Right? A, a guy gets shot, and often the bullet doesn't go right through, it gets lodged in the gut someplace, and they take him into the the, the bar or whatever, the cantina, and they've got to take the bullet out lest it gets infected. Right? And it gets really dramatic. Like you're, when you get wounded by an offense, if you don't get that bullet of offense out, it's going to fester and turn into bitterness. Like When we get offended, our immediate concern should be getting that offense out of our heart, letting it go, forgiving it, covering it over with love. Because if, it, if we allow that offense to remain in us and fester, it's going to poison us. It's going to poison our heart against our wives. It's actually going to affect all of our life. It's going to affect our work life. It's going to affect recreation. We're just going to be miserable. And the very fact that Paul commands husbands not to become embittered with their wives suggests that there's going to be ample opportunity for us to face this temptation. And so we need to be aware of the danger Of such spiritual infection. Again, of all the things Paul could warn husbands about. He doesn't warn them about laziness. He doesn't warn them about lust. He doesn't warn them about liquor. He warns them about
1: bitterness.
0: Why? Well, I think it's because it's one of those sins that's so easy to justify. And it's easy to think that you're being... Righteous, that you're being godly when in fact you are just being deceived. This is the poison that's most likely going to cause the greatest damage in your homes. Because we're going to be faced with that temptation a lot anytime we're offended. And it can be easily justified, but that's a lie. We can't justify bitterness, as we read earlier, Colossians 3:13. If anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive, That's the standard we're called to. And so every time you're offended, you need to be thinking of Colossians 3:13. There is no justification for bitterness. It is poison. It is the bullet that has lodged itself in your gut, if you don't get rid of it, it will kill you spiritually. I think it's remarkable how many times throughout Scripture God's people failed to give Him the respect and honor that He was due. We saw this back in Romans 1. Even though He was God, they failed to glorify Him as God or give thanks. But really, this is the story of Scripture. Again and again, God calls his people to love him and honor him and he gives clarity he blesses them and provides for them but they continue to turn away and yet god doesn't become embittered with them ever even though he's the creator he gave them life and health and all things and they fail to give him thanks they fail to love him they fail to honor him and yet throughout scripture god continues to show his has said his agape love for them and i think one of the best expressions of this is demonstrated in Ezekiel 16. If you would turn in your Bibles there, this is a profound picture that God gives to illustrate His love for His people. It's where God pictures Israel as a child who was cast off from birth. Ezekiel 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. He says, No, I pitied you to do any of the, these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And he goes on to describe how he cared for Israel by providing for her and adorning her with costly garments. He fed her with rich food. And then notice how Israel repaid paid his loving kindness through multiple accounts of spiritual adultery, he lists. And then he says this in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter? That you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And yet, despite all of these flagrant mockers of God, notice how he closes this chapter, his ultimate response to them for their rebellion. Verse 59, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. Verse 62. 62. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. What he's speaking to is the new covenant that Jesus fulfilled on the night when he was betrayed. Christ died to save Israel from their sins. From all of their whorings, as he describes it. Right? Rather than becoming embittered with his people, he showed steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes, he disciplined them. He confronted them. He challenged them in their sin. He called them out very explicitly. And yet he never, ever stopped loving them. He never gave up on them. And that's what he promises in Ezekiel 16. And the same kind of love is what husbands are supposed to have for their wives. Despite how many offenses. Despite how severe the offenses. We're called to love as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.25 And this means not only are we just to quench bitterness when we're offended. But it means we need to do whatever we can. Even despite the cost to ourselves, we need to do whatever we can to minister to the needs of our wives. The next group Paul addresses is children. In verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The word obey is hupakuo. Quite simply, it just means to do what you're told to do. It is... Parents, we tell our children that obedience, true obedience, is right away, all the way, and we say with a happy heart. We say it needs to be right away because if it's delayed, delayed obedience is not obedience. It needs to be done right away. It needs to be done all the way because if it's not completed, they still haven't obeyed. It needs to be done with a happy heart. And the reason we teach them that is because obedience really should be from the heart. They need to have self-control and, and not do so out of rebellion, rebelling in their heart even if they, even if they obey externally. But grudging obedience is still sin in the heart. And notice the parameters that Paul gives for obedience here. Obey your parents in everything. So children, he's talking to you. Obey your parents in everything. So this means you need to obey even when your parents don't understand. Even though they don't know what's going on in your life, when they don't know what's going on in your heart, they don't understand the situation, what your friends are going to think. Obey in everything. This means you should obey even when your parents seem unreasonable or unfair You should obey if your parents are ignorant of the situation or they're just out of step with what is fashionable. You should obey even if your parents don't always obey their authorities. Their sin does not give you license for your sin. So if you're a child... I won't make you raise your hand, but there's some of you here. If you're a child... This is how you demonstrate if you truly are a genuine believer. This is the primary way children demonstrate the reality of their faith. Will they obey in everything? Now, why would children willingly subject themselves to their parents' authority? Especially if what their parents are asking them to do will be embarrassing. Or especially when we live in a culture that actually encourages rebellion. We, actually, we make heroes out of those who don't submit to their authorities. Like why in the world would a child want to submit to their parents for goodness sake? Especially if anybody in the world is going to think of them as heroic. Well notice what the text says. For this is pleasing to the Lord. Now that might sound like a, a very small consolation. But in fact, this is the greatest honor anyone could ever receive in Scripture. And I'll prove that to you. This was the same phrase used by God by God to describe his valuation of the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is the same description of the son in the transfiguration when he was transfigured before the apostles, the three apostles. In fact, it's the only description that God gives to describe his value of the son. So what this is saying is, children, when you obey your parents, you are as pleasing to God, the father, as God, the son was pleasing to the father. There is nothing that pleases God the Father more than when you obey your parents and everything. It is, in fact, this is what Paul prayed for the Colossian church back in Colossians 1. Verse 10, he says, His goal for adult believers is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which would, be, which would result in what? being fully pleasing to him. Children, this is all that God's commanded you. I mean, there's more, but this is primarily what God's commanded you to do. If you do this, you will be pleasing to the Lord. But all of Colossians is what he instructs parents to. And it's as they walk in everything that God has instructed, that is what will bring pleasure to God the Father. And so God's saying, if you're a child, this should be your fundamental concern. This should be your one ambition, the great goal of your life. It's not to be a better musician. It's not to be better athletics or to become popular or to get good grades so you can get a great job and go to a great school. Paul's saying if if you're a child, this should be your one ambition. How can I learn to obey my parents in everything? Because this is how you're going to demonstrate that you're truly a follower of Christ if you're a child. A child who can do this has arrived at a a spiritual maturity that most adults never attain to. And I fully believe this. There may be children in this congregation that are far more mature than most of the adults in this congregation. Because they've submitted their heart to obey their parents and everything. And I also say it because it is so hard to do. Right? It's easy to imagine ourselves being obedient until our parents ask us to do something like two hours of weeding when we want to hang out with our friends. When we had other plans for the day, not only are they not allowing us to do what we want to do, but we have to do something we don't really want to do. And a child who has learned to submit their heart And their soul to to their parents is profoundly spiritually mature. And I think that's also why it's so rare to find children with such love for God and such self-control who really are willing to obey their parents in all things. Lastly, Paul gives instruction to fathers. He says, fathers... Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that word means to arouse a reaction. It means to to prod, to irritate. We might say to, to push one's buttons. Doing something just to get an emotional reaction from them. Now Paul's not talking about tickling them or telling bad dad jokes. And we know that because of the why that Paul provides. Notice that lest they become discouraged... Provoking them is what's going to lead to being disheartened, discouraged. Well, how does that happen? Well, the issue is that it's when fathers set up standards that are unrealistic or unfair. Maybe the quintessential example of this is Mr. Murdstone in Charles Dickens' classic, David Copperfield. Mr. Murdstone was David Copperfield's stepfather. And when he first meets his stepson David, this is what he says to him. David, if I have an obstinate horse or a dog to deal with, what do you think I do? I beat him. I make him wince and smart. I say to myself, I'll conquer that fellow. And this is exactly what Mr. Murdstone did. Any time that David failed to recite a Latin verse properly when he was getting homeschooled by Mr. Murdstone, or whenever he failed to recite uh an arithmetic problem uh, correctly on the fly, he would get a beating. And eventually, he's beaten so much, he he flees in the night. Well, here are ten ways I think fathers often provoke their children and discourage them. We might not beat our children, but I think we can provoke them by, first of all, constantly finding fault with them, pointing out all the ways that they disappoint us. Anytime they do something that's substandard, we draw it to their attention so they know we're not impressed. Secondly, refusing to listen to them. They have something to tell us, but we just close our ears because we just don't have the time or we're just frankly not interested in what they have to say. Presuming to know their motives. We were that age once. We know what we did when we were that age, so we we, we know what's going on in their heart. Failing to give clear boundaries is a way to provoke them, right? Just letting them run amok. And then when they do something wrong, getting upset with them, even though they didn't know that was beyond the boundary. Sometimes it's by demanding too much. Just the expectations of being too high for their age or for their personality. Inconsistency in the expectations. We set up boundaries But the boundaries change from week to week, from day to day, month to month. And so they're just not sure what's the boundary today. We're comparing their behavior to other kids. How come you're not more like your brother? How come you can't be more like your sister? We're outside the family. How come you can't be like the Doblers? I don't know what you guys refer to, but... (laughs) Or breaking your promises to them. Yeah, I'll be home at such and such time. Yeah, I'll play baseball with you today. Chastening them in public. Shaming them publicly. Just showing favoritism favoritism to one child over another. Now, why would a father be tempted to provoke their children? Well, I think there are really two primary reasons this happens. I think maybe the most common is they're just trying to live vicariously through their children. They want their children to be what they were never, never able to be. They know all the ways they failed and they don't want their children to have to experience the same failures they failed. So they want they want great success for them. And so because they're desire in their mind is for the betterment of their children. They actually assume that their high standards and they're pushing them and they're driving them is something their children should be thankful for. Let their children say thank you when they're, when, when getting a home run every time they get at bat isn't good enough. Should have hit it farther. And so they're surprised that their children don't appreciate their parents pushing them. Another reason, I think, is they just have a desire to maintain control of their children. They're afraid, and so they set really rigid standards to control what their children do. Maybe they're afraid of being embarrassed by their children. Or maybe they're afraid their children are getting hurt or hurt others. And so they're overly rigid in their standards and their discipline. Now notice, I'm not saying that, that parents shouldn't discipline their children. Neither is Paul. In fact, the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul's explicitly clear that fathers love their children by bringing them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And also the author of Hebrews says that discipline is a mark of parental love. A father who fails to discipline their children isn't loving them. And this is repeated, of course, many times in the book of Proverbs. So it's not wrong to have high standards for your children. And it's certainly not wrong to discipline them. But rigidity to those standards is often an expression of pride and laziness. When we're overly rigid with our standards, it's often because we're proud and lazy, proud because we just don't want to get embarrassed. We're not really thinking about how to best help them become mature individuals. We're worried about how those kids might make us look, and so when they just don't meet the standard, we come down on them hard. Rather than just trying to understand the situation and understand what, understand them or laziness, right? We don't want to give our attention. Uh, sorry, our, our children the time and attention, the instruction they need to be able to learn how to do something, so we just make rules and then expect them to follow them. When it's not, they don't need discipline. They just need to be told. They need to be shown. They need time. They need to come alongside them. And so we just need to be aware that just having a high standard and being rigid maybe isn't actually being driven out of love, but often it's just our own selfishness. father should discipline sin and disobedience, but weakness, ignorance, immaturity, those things need nourishment. They need teaching. They need warning, admonition. Like immature children usually just need nourishment and instruction. We see this in Hebrews 5, chapter 11. Look at this. You know it well, but I'll point it out. Hebrews 5, chapter 11. Paul writes this, or the author of Hebrews, whoever it was. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice, To distinguish good from evil. Paul's noticing, you guys are immature. You shouldn't be. You should be living like spiritual adults, but you're not. But what does he do? Does he beat them? Does he scold them? No, he tells them, you're acting immature. And then he says, well, what do you need? You need someone to teach you again the basic principles. You need milk. You need solid food rather than solid food so that you can eat solid food. Like Paul recognizes that immaturity needs nourishment, not the rod. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul demonstrated fatherly care through teaching and encouraging. I love this. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 For you know how like a father with his children, so the metaphor is a father with children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. He demonstrated His fatherly love through exhortation, through teaching, through warning. I want to close with one final scripture on fatherly love, and this is from Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 13. And this is for any of you who might feel grieved as you've looked at Paul's instructions here in Colossians and you realize just how far short you've fallen in your respective role within a family, consider what the psalmist says in Psalm, 113, Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Heavenly Father, we thank You that even though we are so spiritually immature and often we do transgress boundaries that You've clearly set up and that You have not changed, that have remained imprinted in the Word of God. And yet, even so, Lord, we rebel against You. And yet, Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, your compassions, they never fail. Lord, help us to be fathers and mothers who are like you. Husbands who love their wives like Christ, you love the church. Lord, we thank you that you remember that we are but dust. And we thank You that You have compassion and mercy. And so on that basis, we come to You and we just ask for Your forgiveness for all the various ways we've failed in these regards. And then we ask for help that You would help us to be more faithful. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.